It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 262 for October 2nd, 2011. Recorded September 30th. You've probably seen electronic picture frames on a co-worker's desk, or maybe at someone else's home. Maybe you have one on your desk. Some say that these electronic frames are wasteful and compare them to bottled water. Bottled water is pretty much inarguably, except perhaps in the boardrooms of Pepsi and Coke, wasteful. Well, I don't think frames quite fit there. I don't have figures to back this up, but I know I can place an electronic frame on my desk and view hundreds of images using a device that consumes electricity. Not very much, but some. I suspect that printing those hundreds of images would have a more substantial environmental impact. I don't want to fight environmentalists generally because I think many of their positions are quite reasonable. It's wise to recycle everything we can. Limiting gasoline consumption and the use of other fossil fuels is intelligent. Climate change, although part of the natural process, is being exacerbated by those of us who walk on two legs, have big brains, and really should know better than to deny it. But sometimes environmentalists are wrong. This is one of those cases. If I can use a low-power electrical device to replace a chemical and mechanical process... That could be a wise choice. As I said, I don't have facts and figures. If you have this information, share it with me, please. But it seems to me that a single, small electronic device that takes the place of hundreds of physical photographs is, on balance, the better solution. I can remember coming back from photographing a wedding or returning from a vacation with a dozen or more rolls of film. Developing that film and creating prints required chemical processes that used silver, other metals, and a number of toxic chemicals. Digital photography has eliminated the chemicals, and electronic sharing of photographs eliminates printing paper, postage, and more. Photography is a lot cleaner than it used to be. Until September, I hadn't owned an electronic frame, though. That's when a suburban Cleveland company sent me a Blazon 3D digital picture frame. Before the frame arrived, I told Blazon Steve Flint I thought I understood how they worked their magic. Well, I was wrong. The software allows the user to define areas that should be considered near or far, with several intermediate ranges. This can be done by using a graduated filter, which works in a lot of cases and is immediately clear to the average photographer. But there are other options. You might want to consider drawing a line around the object you feel should be closest. You'll see an image on the TechBiter Worldwide website where I did it, and that's really not an accurate representation for that particular image. But it would create a dramatic effect that would pop the cat, of course it's a cat, would pop the cat right out of the image. And after all, who doesn't like popped cats? Using the same image, I tried another option with a magic wand tool to select various sections of the image. That's particularly helpful when an image has areas of similar colors. The software there is probably the weakest link in the package right now. It's functional, but it's version 1.0 and could use a lot of refinements. I assume that the developers will address usability issues in future releases. When you have the image marked up the way you think it'll work best, you can convert it to 3D and then use the included red-blue lenses to judge the effect. You use the special glasses only when you're doing the processing on the computer. The next step is to save the image. 
This is the point at which the magic happens. The image is modified so that it works with the lenticular surface that covers the blazon frame. The lenticular or ridged surface is used to produce images that have an illusion of depth as the viewer changes the viewing angle. You've probably seen this technology if you ever bought a box of, oh, say, Cracker Jack, and it contained an image that appeared to move or wink at you. In the print industry, this technology dates back to the 1940s, when it was used to create only basic animations. But in recent years, it's been used to create depth, and that's how Ardent Products uses it with the blazoned frame. When images are on the blazoned 3D frame, you can view an individual image or set up a slideshow. The slideshow can change images at various rates from every 5 seconds to every 60 seconds with a single transition effect or random effects. I'd kind of like to see the times longer than 60 seconds because a frame sitting in someone's office that changes images every 5 seconds or even every 60 seconds could be distracting. How about every 5 minutes or maybe once an hour? And pricing may be a little bit of a challenge. You'll find the online pricing that hovers around $200, and the Blazon site offers a three-payment plan of $80 each that comes out to $240. That seems a bit high for a device like this. But then again, if you compare that to creating hundreds of prints, maybe it's not so bad. It does have three gigabytes of internal memory, so it's capable of holding a lot of photographs. It's also able to play video files and music files, so it is a capable device. Bottom line on the Blazon 3D digital screen, for cats, this clever digital screen shows two-dimensional pictures in three dimensions. Pricey, perhaps, but fun, the Blazon 3D digital picture frame really does provide 3D-like images without the need for special 3D glasses. It would earn five cats if the software was better and the price was a little bit lower, but even at $200, it's considerably less than what many people pay every year to have prints made from photographs. If you'd like more information, you can visit the Blazon website. You will find a link to it on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Thumb drives are indispensable because you can load gigabytes of data onto them and transfer files from the office to home. Thumb drives are dangerous because you can load gigabytes of data onto them and transfer files from office to home. They might also be lost or stolen. Thumb drives are common vectors for viruses and malware, so it's important to protect yourself, protect your company, protect your home computer, and protect your thumb drive. The first USB drives came from Israel, and I remember bringing one home from PC Expo in 2001. It was a 16-megabyte disk-on-key. It was their mid-size drive. The large one was 32 megabytes. The small one, the one that most people bought, was 8 megabytes. The company was planning a USB solid-state drive as large as 256 megabytes. They figured it would cost around $1,000. Well, today you can buy a 16-gigabyte drive for oh, around $12. So it's easy to carry around an enormous number of files, some of which might contain your employer's proprietary information. Some companies forbid the use of USB drives without express permission from the IT department, and this isn't an unreasonable stance. We've all probably heard of entire laptops belonging to the FBI being stolen, and it's even easier to make off with a USB stick. But these things are incredibly useful because they allow you to take files home and work on them. So how do we reconcile security and ease of use? You might consider TrueCrypt your first line of defense. It's a free application. Encrypt the data on your USB drive with TrueCrypt. 
It's open source. It can be used to protect files on desktop computers and on notebook computers, and also provides security for proprietary data on a USB drive. Just run the program, tell it what to encrypt, and you're done. You do have to remember the password. You'll find a link to the TrueCrypt site where you can download it for free on the TechBiter Worldwide website. You might consider write-protecting your thumb drive. I mentioned that thumb drives are common vectors for viruses and malware. To make sure the thumb drive stays clean, you could write-protect it. Some drives do have a physical switch that allows them to be set to read-only status. Even if you plug the device into an infected computer, the portable device remains protected because nothing can be written to it. Only a few drives have physical switches, though, so you might consider using write-protect software. Iron Geek. What a great name. Iron Geek has a solution that's described as a poor man's USB write blocker. Thumbscrew allows you to enable or disable writing to all USB mass storage devices on your Windows system. This means you can make a USB flash drive, a hard drive, an IDE, or SATA drive in an enclosure read-only. The developer cautions, though, that he makes no guarantees as to its forensic validity. You'll find a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website where you can download Thumbscrew. Among the program's severe limitations is the fact that it can write-protect a USB device only on computers where it has been installed. That means if you plug your USB device into an infected computer where Thumbscrew has not been installed, there is no protection. Because of Thumbscrew's limitations, you need to make sure that AutoRunInf, a file that will be found on the thumb drive, is set to be read-only. This is the file that the operating system reads and executes when you plug in the thumb drive. If your thumb drive doesn't have an AutoRunInf file, just create a blank text file with no contents and save it. Then write-protect that file. If the file is present, set its properties to system and read-only. Once you've done that, malware may still be installed on the drive, but at least it shouldn't run automatically. Shouldn't. Being careful is probably your last and best line of defense. If you find what appears to be a lost USB drive, don't pick it up, take it inside, and plug it into your office computer. If you must plug it into some computer, let that computer be a device that's unimportant to you, and be sure it's not connected to your corporate or home LAN at the time. Conversely, be careful about what devices you plug your USB drive into. Amazon is about to release the Kindle Fire, which promises to provide a bit of competition for Apple's iPad. You can buy one now, but you won't receive it until mid-November. The $200 price tag, or Amazon Speak 199, is still more than previous Kindles, but this one offers color, movies, apps, games, and music in addition to reading. It's not as big as an iPad, but at one-fourth the price or less, it's a compelling package. The basic monochrome Kindle now costs $80, although at that price you are going to get ads with it, and there are various other versions ranging from there up to $150. The Color Fire version gives users a dual-core processor and color for the extra 50 bucks. Hundreds of magazine titles are available, for example, Bon Appetit, Ellie, and Oprah. And there are some special editions of titles such as Vanity Fair, Wired, and GQ. Amazon hasn't explained what they mean by special editions. I suspect it probably would include terms such as limited. And there's the library book option, too. I'll have more about that in short circuits. The device itself will have 1024 by 600 pixel resolution on a 7-inch diagonal screen. It's an Android device, but it has just 8 
gigabytes of internal memory. These days, that's not very much. The Fire allows users to view more than 100,000 movies and TV shows. Options include streaming, rental, and download. Amazon Prime members will have access to commercial-free streaming of over 10,000 popular movies and TV shows. That's an $80 a year subscription that includes free two-day shipping of physical products in addition to streaming. Is Apple worried? Is Netflix, I'm sorry, is Quickster worried? <laughs> Maybe they should be. If you use the Fire for visiting websites, all traffic will be routed via Amazon. Consider that, if not a red flag, at least an orange one. This will probably be positioned as a way to make shopping suggestions more accurate for you. And it would do that. It is a feature, though, that some people probably won't want, and it's one that users should be allowed to opt out from. It's going to be interesting to see what Amazon has to offer six months or a year from now. If they're able to hold the price at around $200 and increase built-in memory to 32 gigabytes or more, I might be in the market to replace my Kindle with a fire. In short circuits, I make no secret of the fact that Firefox is my favorite browser, in part because of the wide variety of plugins that are available. But I also make no secret of the fact that Firefox has a horrendous memory leak problem, and it has since the beginning. But memory leaks don't explain why sometimes when I follow a link, the page just freezes solid. I can close the tab, open a new tab, go to the exact same URL, and not encounter a problem. But I consider that unacceptable. I've been looking around to see if I could find something that would make Firefox faster. Sometimes it seems to be a case of waving the dead chicken counterclockwise instead of clockwise, or maybe some other kind of voodoo. What I found on several sites was a series of steps that might, and I emphasize might, fix the problem. I don't like might fix the problem, but it's better than nothing, so I figured it was worth trying. The first step involves opening the Firefox configuration page. You do that by typing about colon config, C-O-N-F-I-G, in the address bar. Firefox will warn you that this is a dangerous place to be. Once you accept that, you'll see a long list of configuration options, and you have to make a few changes. For the full instructions, see the TechBiter Worldwide website, but here's essentially what you'll be doing. You'll be adding one new key, changing two keys from off to on, and changing a third key from 4 to 20. It takes about a minute. One change tells Firefox to immediately load pages. Now, I wonder why that isn't the default. Why would you have any delay in a page load? And the other settings allow Firefox to be more efficient in using the network connection. And also, why would that not be the default? For me, the results were mixed. Firefox loads and displays most pages faster now, but some pages still cause the browser to stall. But when Firefox stalls, the delay is now only 10 or 15 seconds, not 5 minutes. So I guess that's an improvement. If you try it, good luck. Some people think instant messaging is silly, so let me tell you why I like it. At the office, we sometimes send IMs to people sitting on the other side of a cubicle wall. Why? Well, we have our reasons. There are lots of ways to communicate, of course. You can walk to the co-worker's office or cubicle. You can call the co-worker on the phone. If you're sitting side by side, you can yell over the cubicle wall. 
can send an IM to the coworker, or you can send an email. Each of these has advantages, each has disadvantages, and each has its own implicit priority level. Let's look at those options again. You could walk to the coworker's office or cubicle. That's the most urgent method. It's essentially the non-maskable interrupt of personal interactions because it's nearly impossible to ignore somebody who's standing in your office door or hovering over you in a cubicle. A personal visit is the right choice when the building is on fire or if you need a little exercise, particularly when the coworker's on another floor. You can call the coworker on the phone. Calls are one level down from personal visits. A call signals you have a question, comment, or a problem that needs the coworker's attention right now. In many companies, a lot of people spend considerable time on the phone, so you might get dumped into voicemail. And then you have to decide whether the issue is important enough for a personal visit or whether it can be handled by IM or email. The next option down would be to send an instant message to the coworker. Even if the coworker is on the phone, he or she can see your request and choose to ignore it temporarily, reply immediately, or send an acknowledgement indicating that the response will be delayed. I consider it the perfect way to let somebody know a package has arrived, for example. But it's also useful because it creates an exact log of what was said, when, and by whom. The information can then be copied and pasted into a project management system. You may think that the package notification is particularly silly, but I didn't want to take time to carry the package downstairs to the coworker. I thought he would want to know quickly that it had arrived. Yes, I could have called, but people in his department spend a lot of time on the phone, so I would have had to wait until the call cycled over to voicemail, waited to hear his unavailable message, and then have spoken my message. The IM was much faster. It took about ten seconds. At the bottom of my stack, send an email to the coworker. As younger workers say, email is the IM for old folks. Email is a good choice when you don't need an immediate response. The recipient can reply immediately or wait a few minutes, hours, or days. It's always a good idea to indicate in your message what your expected service level is. For example, I've told the client that we'll have an answer by 2 this afternoon, tomorrow morning, the end of the week, whatever. So if you're one of those people who thinks IM is silly, Maybe now is the time to reconsider because efficiency is all about selecting the right tool for the job at hand. And in closing, we return to Amazon. Amazon has finally addressed my primary complaint about the Kindle. As a bookseller, Amazon isn't particularly interested in providing library books, but now, at last, they have relented and Kindle owners can download library books. I had been waiting for Harry Turtledove's third book in the War That Came Early series, a preposterous fictionalization of World War II. Although it's preposterous, the series is also surprisingly engaging. When the Worthington Public Library's automated system let me know that the book was available, I noticed that I now had a choice between the EPUB format, which doesn't work on the Kindle, at least not legally, and the Kindle format, so that's what I selected. The next time I turned on the Kindle, there it was, and there it would stay for the next 14 days. After that, the book would be returned to the library so that it could be checked out by another patron. So thanks to Amazon, and thanks to the Central Ohio Libraries that are part of the Digital Downloads Project. Digital Downloads, a library collaboration, is the result of a grant from the Federal Institute of Museum and Library Services awarded by the State of Ohio in 2004 to the Grandview Heights Public Library. The original members of the grant were Grandview and Upper Arlington. 
total 14 library systems are now involved, and those include Grandview Heights Public Library, Upper Arlington Public Library, Columbus Metropolitan Library, Worthington Libraries, Bexley Public Library, Plain City Public Library, Green County Public Library, Pickaway County Public Library, Fairfield County Public Library, Marysville Public Library, Kenton Public Library, Washington Centerville Public Library, Pickerington Public Library, and Southwest Public Libraries. These kinds of initiatives will become increasingly common as libraries work with providers of digital content and as digital readers become less expensive and more capable. Bravo! Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.